Welcome to the Outer Realm with Michelle DeRoche and Amelia Passano. Airing live on the United Public Radio Network, 105.3 FM in New Orleans. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Wednesday night segment of The Outer Realm. We are broadcasting not live on the United Public Radio Network this evening. You are listening to a pre-record. So you are finding us, however, on the United Public Radio Network, UFO, Paranormal Radio Network 105.3 and 107.7 FM in the beautiful city of New Orleans. We are fully sponsored by the amazing people over at Folgers Coffee who have been a part of our journey since the very beginning, and that's a few years now. So thank you, Folgers. We appreciate you so very much and couldn't do it without you, nor would we want to. Also, big thank you to Justin Snicker, a.k.a. Dr. Snick, the sonic surgeon, for his contribution of his time, his voice, and his music for the intro that you just heard. He's an award-winning composer of Halloween, horror, sci-fi, and dark wave electronic music, which can be found on any of your favorite listening music platforms. Also, big thank you to Steve McGinnis, the artist behind all of the banners and logos here at The Outer Realm. Check him out on Facebook and Instagram also specializes in the horror genre, horror movies, graphic novels, comic books, you name it, he does it. Anyway, I've had the pleasure today of spending the afternoon, and we, of course, uh, have him on often, and we love him, um, Mark Ollie, all the way from the UK, and he's going to be discussing his book, The Life and Times of the Real Robin Hood. I know. I know. You're like, what? <laughs> Here we go. Bring on our special guest. Hi. Hi. Great to be back. Oh, we love having you back. <laughs> so the thing is about doing the pre-record is I have you all to myself. Hey. <laughs> you never make it. <laughs> I know. That's hard. But I have been waiting for this because we were going to do this a couple of times and then ended up bouncing around and switching things up and... Um, I tell you, Robin Hood, I grew up with Robin Hood. So when I saw your book, you said, well, we're going to talk about the real Robin. I'm like, what? I don't know. The fairy tale guy's pretty cool. <laughs> so I guess, you know, let's start with who was he? he what we're reading, it's a facade. Well, well, I it's it's funny because I've I've done two books on what you call legendary characters. Um, and one is Robin Hood and the other is King Arthur. And I, I started from a different place with both of them okay. because very much like everybody uh, over here, especially in the UK, we all sort of assume Robin Hood, you know, is probably just some guy that was made up, you know, in some point in history. Uh, but then King Arthur, everyone kind of thinks, yeah, there's a possibility that, you know, maybe that person was real. And the more that I actually plowed into both of those characters, the more I discovered that there's a huge amount of nonsense talked about King Arthur. So oh. that took years, absolutely years to sort that book. Well, it out. took you like, what, 50 years? That that whole interview, well, guys, you got to go back yeah. and watch it. It was mind-blowing. Yeah. 45 years to get into print, you know, so it, right. a ridiculous amount of stuff. 
but eventually we sort of got there in the end. But Robin Hood was a different kettle of fish. Once once I started getting into Robin Hood, I started to realise that actually, you know, it's only medieval times. So in, in archaeological terms, you're only you're only talking about something that's happened in the last thousand years, which is not that long when it comes to right. archaeology. Right. Uh, and there are records that have survived. So the more I started ploughing into this, the more I thought, you know what? There's just a possibility this guy might be real. So, so what made you want to delve into it? Is it your archaeology background? Like, I understand um, King Arthur because, oh, my God, he gets beaten okay. to death. Robin Hood sort of takes the back seat a little bit to the King Arthur and, you know, well, that I, whole I, thing. I, I ended up working with a producer. Um, I can get a quick plug-in, actually. Cause, yes, let's do that. Uh, we we decided yeah. we were gonna we were gonna produce this. Now these these are quite scarce now because these are the DVDs, uh, but you can still get them. I believe they are still available online, so you can get them. We did a really good job of them actually. We did it's got an inside wow. as well and all wow. that. So, Beautiful. Uh, I, I worked with a, a producer guy called Brian Brian Lomax, um, and when we've we've been working together ages, uh, he's one of the two producers that form Mythco. Uh, mythological company which is my production company okay. um, and you, you go all the way back to sort of <clears throat> we started working in 2006 on a project then um, and, and he was going through me books and he was saying well you know maybe we could do this one maybe we could do that one and then he sort of he, he got to this point where he said look you've been talking about doing something on Robin Hood you know so why don't you actually go ahead and do it and we'll see where it goes well it, it kind of you've got the the the, the 40 year span of, of Arthur but we managed to do sort of Robin Hood in the space of four years so the entire book from start to finish all the research everything that went into that and then moving on to producing it as you know as a DVD release and a documentary, uh, the whole process only took four years. But where I live, we're actually next door in effect to Nottingham, so you've only okay. got the sort of <clears throat> drive, you know, fifty. So that miles, was easy so. for you. Well, yeah, then, kind, then your kind usual of. stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was, it's not I like you could go find Camelot. Just like that, without research. No, no. I mean, if, if you decided to do that, you'd, you'd have to, you know, if, if you didn't think it was in Wales, you weren't looking for Camelot, you'd finish up down south, which is, you know, 400 and odd miles away. Right. Where, right. Whereas, you know, we've got Cheshire, which is where I live. Well, next door to that's Derbyshire and next door to that's Nottinghamshire. Right. So it's only going across, you know, you're not, you're not going that far to do it. So um, I started off on the research and very, very quickly started stumbling over things that began as coincidences so you'd sort of you'd be looking at the legends and you'd line all the legends up and you'd think well hang on a minute it says here he killed the sheriff of nottingham and then you'd look at the next sheriff of nottingham list oh look there's a sheriff there who died in office and then a few years later you'd find you know oh you know somebody else little john came and he killed the sheriff and then you'd look at the actual archaeological records and you go hang on a minute there's another sheriff there who's died around the same time. You start piecing these together. Mm -hmm. um, so what I ended up doing, I did it. I mean, I, I call the Arthur book a polychronicon, which is a chronological history. Yes. It's actually the second version of that that has come into print. The original polychronicon that I was working on was this life and times of the real Robin Hood. So it runs a bit like a, a diary. Again, you can read right. it from start to finish. So it makes it, it's user-friendly, like it's user, uh, it's easy to read. 
reader friendly, yeah. shall we say. Like they could do and further their own research if they were curious based on the way you have it laid out. Yes, yeah. Basically, right. I, I've, I've put it in chronological order. Yeah. Also, I've, I've tried to put in there the major medieval events. So when the king changes or the queen changes or there's crusades yeah. or, you know, there's, there's um, geographical alterations. Which is like all cross-referencing, realistically, which yeah, you but, need. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as you start to read it, you read it as a, uh, it almost reads as a life story. And um, as I say, the interesting part of it was the more I plowed into it, the more it started fitting in with uh, what is known as recognized history. Yeah, that's it. That's the there one. There it life, is. Life and Times of the Real Robin Hood. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the one. Right. Um, right. I can tell you a bit of trivia while the image is on there as well. Over yes. here, we had. Um, Please. We had an amazing television story called uh, te television series uh, called Robin of Sherwood, um, and uh, written by a, a guy called Kip, who's very famous as a scriptwriter. And that sword on the cover comes from that television series, 1980 oh, series, Robin nice. of Sherwood. I mean, it, it's accurate. You know, it's correct <laughs> yeah. for the time, but it was right. made for that series. So probably right. most people won't realize that. But I love it. I love no, the background that. as well. It looks like it's all embroidered. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's that greenery, isn't it? Um, yes. And it's it's a, a um, how can I put it? It's sort of a it's an Eastern medieval sort of tapestry yes. pattern. I actually took that photo for the cover, so it's, it's my design. They uh, they changed the typeset slightly, but right. apart from that, and you'll uh, notice Templar crosses. I, first thing I noticed, just saying. Yeah. I have a feeling we're going to do a bit of a crossover. I hope. Yeah, yeah we'll float <laughs> in that direction. Yeah, we'll float All in right. that direction. Excellent. All right. So, well, uh, the, one of the places to start, I suppose, was um, people were saying, you know, this this guy isn't real. And a lot of historians had done research and said, well, maybe he was alive in the 1300s or maybe he was alive in the 1200s. Uh, a few, a very small number of them said, well, maybe he's alive in the 1100s. Mm -hmm. Well, when you actually string everything together and you start to make sense of it all, you can actually, believe it or not, pinpoint his birth date. He was born probably in the winter of 1129 or the spring wow. of 1130. So we, we, we can actually pin him down. Um, part of that is engineering things backwards. You know, if you start to look at, at the things that are going on mm -hmm. um, and who he met and what he did and things like that, you, you can work it out. That's that's that's. I'm going to nail Nicholas the Mass and say that's when he was born in, in the winter of 1129 going into 1130. Right, right. That's amazing because <laughs> they sure don't, um, they sure make it look like it's more, you know, later medieval for the most part when you're looking at uh, some of the old, the old films, shall we say. <laughs> well, I, I can, I can tell, I can tell you how that's come about. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, the, 11, the 1100s makes sense because right. uh, if he's in that time period, that's you've got, well, you've just passed the first crusade. So you're heading for the second crusade and right. there's a lot of links between him and the third crusade. So he's, he's got to, he's got to be around sort of going just out of the 1100s into the start of the 1200s. Um, you've also got this idea that he's met with uh, Richard the Lionheart. So obviously the two people's lives have got to overlap. Right. Um, so when you start looking at that, you begin to realize very quickly, well, he's got to be, he's got to be alive in the 1100s. He has to be. Mm -hmm. um, most yeah. people, uh, most of the other historians have gone slightly later. They've reckoned 1150s, 1160s, right. because they think he's younger further on. But, and this is what the explanation I'm coming to, 
there's a tradition, and it's known by medieval scholars, that if you're born and your name, let's say, is Robin Hood, you then marry and produce a son, then your eldest son's name will be Robin Hood. Okay. And then that could confuse that, things, for sure. Yeah, that person's right. eldest son can also be called Robin Hood. Now, the reason I know this is, I mean, and this is common, I've done my family history, and there are, I think there's 12 Johns, one after another, and they span like 300 years of, you know, John wow. the first, John the second, John the third. Right. And it's this practice of calling your eldest son by your name. Right. Uh, now, we know that he has he has a son by Marion, uh, who's also known in some of the legends as Clorinda. They, they get married and they have a son. And the eldest son is Robin Hood 2. Right. Now, Robin Hood 2 is alive in the 1200s. Right. So, you know, knowing that, it helps to make sense of, of this sort of mishmash of Robin Hoods. And funnily enough, and this is another good thing as well, <laughs> when you start looking through the records uh, and you see like, oh, there was a, you know, a Robert Hode that was, you know, done for stealing in the 1200s. And then there's somebody else called Hode that's done a bit later on. And then all of a sudden, by the 1300s, there's loads of people popping up all over the country mm -hmm. called Robin Hode or Robin Hood. Uh, and the reason for that is, to begin with, it's a family name. Then the family gets bigger. So then they start to enter the medieval records. So needless to say, there's a few more of them. Then Hode becomes a traditional epithet, if you like, for a criminal. So if you are a robbing Hood, you are a criminal. So Hode <laughs> or Ode becomes the name for criminals. So right. then by the time you got to the 1300s, you know, they're all going, I'm Robin, I'm Robin. No, I'm Robin. I'm Robin uh, Hood. And it's, and it's all over the British Isles. <laughs> they're all calling themselves Robin Hood, which just means they've gone into legend, basically. That's what's happened. It's taken about two or 300 years for this character right. to go into legend. Oh, so, you, you, well, yeah, you can see what the problem is. You know, you've got to yes. sort of bring in yeah. this, this enormous medieval leaf blower and blow them all out of the way. Oh, sure. I mean, you anybody know. looking to do an article even or, you know... Um, yeah, or any sort of research, they're going to get pretty confused. It's pretty convoluted. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. So you were able to figure this out easily, of course, and move on from that. So let's start then. Who was Robin Hood? Right. Okay. He's um, he's actually born into a family where his let me get this right. His mother's previous married name was O'Malley or O'Malley. Right. So he marries, uh, his, his, his mum marries uh, a forester who we think his name is Udard or Utart. Mm -hmm. um, and she marries him and they have Robin. Now, this is where it gets interesting because previous marriage, she'd already produced several sons and daughters. One of those is a guy called Red Roger who eventually kills Robin to stop him from inheriting another one of those another one of those turns out possibly potentially to be will scarlet okay and his brother will scathelock who is actually slightly different so when you start to look at the family tree you start mm -hmm. to break that down um i can tell you what he's not he's not a you know some dispossessed saxon noble that's 
later nonsense that, that crept into it. Uh, right. What he actually is, if you trace his ancestry back, you go all the way back through marriage, you finish up actually at Bishop Odo, who is the um, cousin of um, William the Conqueror. So he's actually descended, yeah, he's descended from Normans. So, um, you know, by the time you actually arrive at him, I mean, you've got to understand your medieval social structure to make head and a tail right. out of who's married to what and how they end up. In fact, I might even have the family tree in the book. Let me just see. Um, I don't mince, mince me words with the book. I actually put everything in here. Um, I'll give it a plug as well while I'm just looking for the family Absolutely. tree. Um, when the book was first published, um, the president of the worldwide Robin Hood Society, bless him, was an American chap. Yeah. Um, and he put a review up and he basically said, and I'm just going to quote him, he said, this is the best book on Robin Hood ever written. There you are. There's the family tree. Let me just see if I can bring that into focus. Yes, look at it, that. It, it, it looks, whoops, it looks quite complex. There it we does. Go. It yeah, does. There we go. Robin's, uh, he's over here. That's Robin over here. Right. But you, can see, you can see, if nothing else, that I've sort of at least had a good go at making sense of it. Right. Um, right. That's well, what a, what a wonderful compliment. Yeah. Because it does make sense. Um, uh, and out of the documentation as well. So he's he's he grows up, he spends the first... Um, most of his 15 years, call it 16 years, he's actually adopted by the Earls of Chester. Now, Chester's not normally associated, you know, it's all Nottingham this, Nottingham that, Nottingham the other. Actually, I was only able to find out that he spent three days in Nottingham. Uh, obviously, they <laughs> operated around Nottingham, Nottinghamshire, right. and around the castle. Right. But he's only actually in the town that I could find for three days. But the first 16 years of his life, he was adopted by one of the Earls of Chester. So he grows up as a sort of noble page, I suppose, mm. or assistant to the nobles mm -hmm. um probably he finishes up at a castle called chartley castle and then from there goes up to robin hood's bay which is up near scarborough and he works on scarborough castle linked to the o'malley family because the o'malley family are actually sending most of the kids most of the people of functioning age up there mm. um, and then we have this fabulous story it's a great story you're going to love it and it's not, not widely known but it's it's called Robin Hood Goes Fishing. Right. The idea is he arrives up there, he arrives at Whitby, um, and they're having trouble up there with Vikings raiding because you've still got Vikings raiding in like the 1100s. That's not unusual. Mm. Uh, and this widow up there who owns ships, uh, she's quite a wealthy lady, says to him, well, are you any good at sailing? Well, Robin's like, well, I've never tried it, but I'll have a go. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, as, as, yeah, as we all know, it's not that simple. Anyway, he gets on this <laughs> boat, you know, so he's sailing around, you know, and, and sure enough, up comes this. It's described as a French ship. So it's raiding from northern France. It's, it's the Norsemen from northern France that are coming up and raiding on that coast. Uh, and basically what he does, is he takes the other ship out with a bow. He's, so he's firing arrows ship to ship. And it's the first time we, we ever hear of him being anything to do with archery, being a, an archer. Wow. Well, he, he certainly would have qualified as one because you had to practice in that, um, mm -hmm. you know, on the village green every Sunday in medieval times. But then he captures the ship. 
and the Viking ship he captures is worth a fortune. So he takes it back with all this booty on it and everything. And it's it's said <laughs> that, you know, that, that this this widow is obviously overjoyed and he uses the money to build a chapel. Now, the funny thing is, actually up there, um, there is actually a medieval chapel that was said to go back all the way to the days of Robin Hood. So wow. The, you know, it's it's like you come up with a story like that. You read the story and you think, oh, how, how on earth, you know, can I make sense out of this? Mm-hmm. And then the next minute you're actually falling over the archaeology. You know, you suddenly discover the O'Malley's are building the castle at that time. Yes. And of course, they were sending people up there. And and uh, even rebellion. There was, um, I think it was the Stephen and Matilda rebellion period mm-hmm. um, over here. Um, right. He gets sent up there to fight for the O'Malley's. So, you just think, oh, right, now I know why it's called Robin Hood's Bay. You know, otherwise it's completely illogical. And I mean, all the, go on. You know, I was going to say, when you say like the, the church, I mean, going back that far, I know, have I mean, you know, spending time in different parts of Europe and the UK, it's not easy to find something. I mean, you if you find something that's like 1200, you're like hooting and hollering because that's impressive. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, back as it, it it's even described as an Anglo-Saxon church that was rebuilt by the Normans. Right. And the reason they know that is that the Victorians then came along and basically restored it. So they, they right. found all this information out. Right. It's been known for, you know, 100 years plus. Yes. Um, but it's great to be able to piece that together. Yes. Um, and then he comes back. As far as we know, then he comes back. Now, the reason I say he was at Chartley Castle, and this, this, this is where there's no argument really, because you've got Chartley and, and you've, it, it's, it, it's a Crusader period castle, but right. right next to it is a Norman manor house with a moat that belonged to the Earls of Chester. So you know that you're on safe ground because you've got the archaeology to back it right. up. Right. Next to that, are you ready for this? Next to that is the medieval village of Loxley. <laughs> Next, next to that, okay, is Tutbury, which is where Friar Tut comes from. Right. And then next to that, there's a church, a little church village, uh, where it's said that Robin married Maid Marion, Maid Marmion. So she's right next door. And you've got all three of those places in a straight line going straight across. You know, it's like I say, you couldn't make it up. As soon as right. you start to get these different elements and piece them together, you can just put them straight into the geography. Right. Um, it was so a fabulous. The locations are are the the, the key, obviously. Well, and and who yeah. is Maid Marian? Our lovely um, Maid Marian. Where does he meet her? Well, this is where it gets interesting. There's a a family called the Marmion family, and they're based around Abbots Bromley, which is very very close to Chartley. It's another neighbouring village. But the Marmions actually owned all the land in that area. So mm. if you hear of this thing, the Abbots Bromley Horn Dance, this legendary thing where they all come out with horns made, uh, like headdresses made yes, from uh, yes. deer horns, and yeah. they all dance around, that's the Marmion family um, ceremony. Now, this is putting pieces together again. The carbon dated the horns. The horns go back to the 10 hundreds. So wow. Rob, Robin would have seen the Marmion family's horn dance at Abbots Bromley. Right. Made Marmion, right. it's not a huge jump to have that name convert into Marion. And when you actually go and study the Abbots Bromley horn dance, Made Marion, Made Marmion, is one of the characters in the horn dance, but Robin isn't. 
which I think is fantastic. He's not in it. They have an archer. They've got an archer, a forester dressed in green, but he's never been called Robin Hood, never, because the whole of that ceremony revolves around Maid Marian. It's Maid Marian's family and it's her site and it's her ceremony. So even the bits that are missing, you know, you start thinking, this fits, you know, it fits. It's brilliant. But yeah, right, so she right. she was a noble lady. The funny thing is, they got together, and and in medieval times, the idea was that you you loved your beloved lady from afar, so you didn't sort of drag her off to church, marry her, and off off you went. It didn't work right. like that. <laughs> Took a but while. It, it, yeah, it did take a while. So they they only actually get married when they're actually quite old, and they've already got a couple of kids. Uh, in, in reality. Wow. But that happens. That is perfect. It fits perfectly well with medieval tradition because you sort of made an honest woman of her when, you know, you weren't off fighting in crusades and, you know, all the rest of it as a noble. You Mm -hmm. sort of had this romantic love from afar. So, you know, that fits as well. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Um, We know know that Friar Tuck as well from Tutbury actually officiated at that wedding Uh, (laughs) because the legend legend that's associated – uh, with the church, we cover this in the DVD actually in quite a lot of detail. Uh, right. his, name, his, his name is is Roger. It's Friar Roger Tut um, of Tutbury, and he's the one that officiates. Uh, we can even pin the year down because there was a couple of years in the 1100s when the wicked King John fell out with the Pope, and the Pope excommunicated him. And for a six-year period, all of the churches in this country were shut. You couldn't do anything. They were closed. So there's a tradition that they got married under this big yew tree at Doveridge. It's the church yeah. in Doveridge. Uh, and it, it's this. It's got to be a couple of thousand years old, this yew tree. So it, it was pretty enormous when Robin was alive. You know, it's this ancient mm-hmm. tree. And does it still exist today? Yes, you can go visit it. And this, wow. is, this is the beauty of it. That's where they got married under that tree because all of the other places where you could get married were shut. That's crazy. That's (laughs) crazy. It sounds a little bit like her family had a lot of, um, a lot of Druidism, like Druid background and traditions. In medieval England, um, you still had ancient traditions persisting, especially in the monastic communities. Yes. Um, And the reason for that is, well, I'm not going to mince my words. It's down to the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller continued traditions from earlier times. So like the cross they have, the the red cross with the arms, that's Roman. That's Mm -hmm. known from 300 AD. The whole idea of knights, you know, grouping together into, you know, into orders, which is what they did. That's Roman again. That's another Roman idea of them coming together um just everything they were doing was sort of roman the celtic british church as well was founded on druidism so a lot of the patterns that you find you know churches with gothic architecture and this that, and other you're basically walking out of, of normal life into what is a druid grove you know you've got all these trees with arms and uh when you look in the in the bible for guidance on how to build a church you won't find it it's not there it's all Druidism, where you align it, you know, where the sun rises and the moon rises and it yeah. sets. They're built on ancient sites that have right. been previously used. The wheel of the year, you know, the colours that they use on the altar. I mean, it could just go on and on and on. The mm. list is endless, but it's all down to the Celtic British Church. Um, right. 
I love which, that. Yeah. Which, funnily enough, I don't cover in the Robin Hood book, but I do cover all that in the King Arthur book. So I'll get you a do. quick plug in for that one. Yeah. You do. So we're going to let you have it. <laughs> yeah, it's all covered right. in that. So right. if you put the two together, you get kind of get a full, a more full picture of what was going on over here at the time. Right, right. So we get into um, Knights Templar. And, well. you know, <clears throat> I know we have to do it. You know, yeah. we have to do yeah. it because that's that to me. I love the connection. Well, if it kind of follows that if if yeah. it was the Earls of Chester yes. that brought Robin up, which it clearly was, mm -hmm. they actually had their own court. They had their own laws. They had their own uh rulership if you like here in chester that was separate entirely separate from london so what you've got to imagine is you've got to imagine the bottom half of the country is like the blue team because they all support the w wicked king john you know boo the villain and all that uh, and he's he's kind of connected with france and france is trying to take over britain at this point so mm -hmm. you know that that's where that comes from but then the northern barons and the northern part of the country that's the red team because they all support richard the lionheart you know right. and trapped between the two north of the trent is is what i'm going to call the green team because the green team is robin and the foresters and and they're keeping these two sides apart so they're right. basically they're, they're sort of stealing and causing problems and and worrying the blue team while at the same time supporting the red team now the red team red is templar we we know from historic records for example that richard the lionheart there's no doubt he was a Templar. He was mm -hmm. a major, major yes. figure in, in the Templars at this time. Yes. Well, logically speaking, so's Robin. I'm not the first author to come up with that. There's, there has been books written on, on the Templar connections that Robin has. Mm -hmm. But when, when you look at Robin's life, you think, well, hang on a minute. He, he kills a couple of Sheriff of Nottingham's. And then he gets away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he gets away with it. How how on earth does he get away with it? You know, right? If he's some Saxon peasant living in the forest, you go and kill a nobleman. That's it. You're dead. You know, that's it's true. That's lights true. out. But quite the opposite. He ends up. You know, he's got the right to build a chapel, which he builds up up near Whitby, and then mm -hmm. he's also got another right to build a chapel, which he builds down here next to the A1 in Nottinghamshire. There's a church there. Kirk Smeaton, where that church is another one that's attributed to Robin. So mm -hmm. he's got the right to build that. He's got the right to marry a noble woman. You know, he's got mm -hmm. the right to kill off King John's enemies. You know, the best the best stories. I've got to tell you this. I love it because you can pin this down to 1193. So you've got a year for this because that's that's the year that Richard the Lionheart is in this country. The whole of his reign, he only spent about maybe seven or eight months in this country on two visits wow. on, on one of the visits, he comes up to Nottingham castle. Now this is, this is in the Royal records. So I'm, I'm you know, speaking from mm -hmm. documentary records here and he comes up here, sorts Nottingham out because he's got loads of problems with Nottingham. Uh, now the legend is, this is the legend that while he's up here, he's, he wants to see his forests, you know, King Richard, he owns all this woodland. So he goes off to have a look around Nottingham. Anyway, He's wandering through the forest and coming the other way is the forester who's looking after the forest, who, amazingly enough, happens to be Robin Hood. Now, Robin sees this stranger with a couple of knights wandering through the woods and he thinks, hey, what's going on here? So he challenges this stranger. Now, basically, I'm going to paraphrase the story. He goes, oi, who are you? And this other guy goes, hang on a minute, who are you? 
So Robin goes, it's my forest. And the other guy goes, no, it's not. It's my forest. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, they end up on the floor in a punch up and, and the knights have to pull Robin off because they say, hang on a minute, Robin, this, this is Richard the Lionheart. This is the king. <laughs> so, the king. so the king yeah so the king throws back his hood you know his knightly whatever he's wearing he's right. sure enough it's king richard well that's it rings true because i mean in medieval times we didn't have any way of knowing what kings look like right all robin was doing was defending his woods like he's always right. done now at this point you think okay it's either off with his head or you know anyway the king was impressed went the other way and they actually befriended each other and it's said that they went to a pub called the old trip to jerusalem which is in still exists uh in nottingham it's one of the oldest pubs in britain wow it's, uh, it, it's built into the castle wall it's wow. actually built into the, the brew house cave where where they made the beer for the monks um, amazing and they went there before richard returned to crusade and it's it's said that at that point obviously robin was then bumped up he was bumped up to then the level of a full-blown nobleman. You know, he was uh, he hit he hit the sort of upper levels, um, right? right. Why well, he had the trust of the king? Fantastic he, story. He beat on the king yeah. and got the trust. Of the king. Yeah, they ended up having this fist fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which, uh, I get the final. <laughs> There's Robin. You can imagine Robin swearing at him in some Lancastrian dialect, you know, and the king swearing back in French, you know, because <laughs> he didn't speak any any Saxon or anything like that. So it must have been quite funny. Which is, must've... yeah, isn't that like amazing? As, as much yeah. like William the Conqueror, who had the throne of England for 20 years and never stepped foot in England, but built the Tower of London and these, these well, incredible he, William the Conqueror did. He sort of hung around like a bad smell for a couple of years in, in sort he? of, you know, after 1066. Yeah. He didn't really, he didn't really go off and do anything else. In fact, I think he ends up going back to the continent and dies in the wars there in the 1070s. But he hung around from like 1066 to around about 1073, 1074, something like that. So he kind yeah. of had a, a bit of an innings, but he well, was he's here. An ancestor. My grandfather always used to say, you know, mm. we where the you know our ancestor is, you know, a, a French king who sat on an English throne for twenty years and didn't visit, and so that's what I grew up hearing. Well, <laughs> I mean, made, he, oh, peculiar. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, he, he he did hang around a bit, but, right, um, right, but, interesting, but wasn't. Um, I mean, you think, you know. William the Conqueror conquers the whole of Britain. Well, he, he never did. He right. never really That's managed. Just another folk, bit of folklore, of course. Yeah, <laughs> forget Wales, Ireland, Scotland, right. you know, all those other areas. He, he basically right. got control of England. Yes. Um, and yes. that was that. You know, the, the yes. rest of it, as they say, is literally history. So, but isn't it? It's always fun to listen to all the folklore. You know, the fish was this big, and the fish yeah. was this big. It was like a minnow. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, this so, idea, this idea of the blue team and the red team is really important because, at the end of the day, that never really got resolved. Right. So that's why in this country we've got what what's called the North South divide. Right. That's why you know we've got. London sort of ruling the roost and southerners and all this that and the other and then you up here you got Chester Manchester Liverpool you know Lancaster right. that's northerners you know so that's the northern bit right. um, and it's been like that for a you know probably knocking on for a thousand years 
uh, it's not going to change anytime soon. And then right. just to cap it all, further north you go, eventually you cross Adrian's Wall and, whoa, you're in Scotland. You know, that's the yellow team up there. That's, you know, Robert the Bruce and all that lot. <laughs> oh, they must be like really peeved off because somebody cut down their tree. <laughs> well, that was yeah, heartbreaking. That was heartbreaking. Oh, uh, you know, that, that yeah, was my heart hurt when I saw that. Which, funnily enough, takes us back to Robin Hood again, because that was in the Kevin Costner, wasn't it? Uh, Robin Hood, <laughs> yeah. Prince of Thieves, you know. Right. That's where he, he first meets uh, meets the coloured chappy there, you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. It was played by Morgan Freeman, I think, if I remember right. Uh, yeah. The, I, uh, I always love the depictions in all these films, you know. Um, so, at this point, Robin Hood now is, he's noble. So he's yes. he's got a title which gives him a whole other um a whole other bunch of of privileges and responsibilities say. yeah and re yeah. and responsibilities uh, right. in when we did the DVD that was the point at which we kind of jumped in and said okay that's probably round about the time when he would get married it's also round about the time that he suddenly then officially becomes a noble under the uh, command of Richard the Lionheart. So a lot Which of... Which makes sense. To yeah, marry a uh, noble woman, you would have to, I would think, yeah. be a noble. Well, that period of his life, work, trying to work it out, that, that looks to have lasted about 16 years. Mm -hmm. And in that 16-year period, he, he wasn't just limited to, you know, Barnsdale and Nottingham and, you know, that area. Uh, he, he kind of wandered a bit up and down the the, the road there on the, on the east side of the country. So he's got more control in uh, South Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, coming down into Staffordshire, Shropshire. He's, he's got controls down there. But then also he goes across the country. It's interesting because some of the legends put him in Cumbria, Cumberland, yeah. which is the Lake District. Now that's on the other side of the Pennines. Now I, I put this to a friend of mine who was um, a landscape archaeologist. Now landscape archaeologists specialize in aerial photographs and satellite images and this, that, and the other. And I just, I, we were just over a cup of coffee one day and I happened to mention to him and I said, do you know, I just can't work this out. I've no idea why Robin Hood would have any interest in Cumbria. And he just went, well, that's because the two are connected by a Roman road. So I'm like, I can't believe it. There goes the archaeology again. So you've right. got this diagonal Roman road that goes straight across the Pennines and dumps you straight into Cumbria. Now, also from literature, a lot of the landowners, either side of this Roman road going all the way across the Pennines, a lot of the landowners appear to have taken an interest in the stories of Robin Hood. When you start looking at where they're coming from and you look at the documentation, it's their storytellers that are perpetuating the legends. So I'm like, this is incredible because you've got backup from archaeology, you've got backup from the legends themselves, and then you've got backup from the surviving stories that that appears to be the connection between the two. Um, and then uh, Lady de Gavila, I think I'm saying that, like, that right, Lady de Gavila, um, she was one of the people who was the major landowner in Cumbria, connected again, to the barons of chester so you've got another connection another going connection. back right um, also it's worth mentioning as well when he becomes a templar he seems to join an order which is specific to richard the lionheart which is the lion 
the lion, all the nobles that are connected to the lion, have a single lion rampant on the shields. They all have the same in different colours. So you'll have a purple right. lion, a green lion, you know, a red lion and that. Because Richard the Lionheart, believe it or not, has a red shield with a black lion. Um, when you see the three sort of yes. leopard things, that's later. They've back-engineered that to put that onto his shield. When you look right. at depictions from the time, he's got this single <clears throat> one single lion on it. So that right. was a major, a major discovery. I, I never realised there was this separate order of lions of the north. Um, uh, yeah. Well, so that there's there's a revelation for all the Templar fans as well. It, you no, know, they had a, they had a, yeah, they had a separate subdivision specific to Richard the Lionheart. The idea the idea was that you were a, a follower of um, you were a follower of Christ who ro who rose from the dead three days after being crucified. And in the medieval times, they believed that when a lion gave birth, the cub was dead for three days and then came alive came back. so that's what their lion represents now of right. course richard made it all the way on crusade made it all the way out to jerusalem uh, right. he never actually went in because he said i am i'm a warrior i'm drenched drenched in blood i can't possibly go into the holy city so he mm -hmm. saw it he got there but he never actually entered any of the gates and Do you that's think it's just because he did not want to tackle it uh, <laughs> it's no it's by well, then i mean I mean, you know. it was a bit of a, yeah, it would have been a difficult thing to do. And I think it would have upset plus, all. Didn't he like to like indulge in, in a little bit of the, you know, the oh, yeah, all beverages? Uh, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Royal privileges, right. yeah, you know. all kinds of things. But right. I mean, it's said that he sent the sword of King Arthur into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So clearly he sent people into the city. Right. He just never went in there himself. himself you know, he, yeah. he stopped short right. of going in. But it's still, it's a, it's a really nice connection. Isn't to it? have because it, you know it, it makes them more real i yeah. think because you know there's so much it's all folklore it's like it, it's just like like arthur the same idea it's folklore it's stories but there's there was never anything tangible they can never figure out who he was where he was buried what his life was like i mean there's there's ruins of a cathedral somewhere in england the name eludes me at the moment this is where Arthur and Guinevere were buried. The monks found them. Yeah. And now yeah, we don't know. The stone is gone. <laughs> yeah, and I'm yeah. just like, oh, come on. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a little bit more surviving. There's a bit more surviving for Robin. Um, yeah. When I was putting the book together, I'd got to the point after four years, I got to the point where I'm, I'm like, right, I'm going to I'm going to publish this. And then all of a sudden, somebody sent me a link to some records for Pontefract Castle, which is up here, again, up north. Yes. And there was a big siege. There was this massive attack on Pontefract Castle. And what they did in the records was they listed all the defenders. And lo and behold, you know where this is going. Robin Hood is listed with his dad as defenders of Pontefract Castle. And this is him proper. And it's a, it's is... just like our Robin Hood. It's not like a descendant or... A... Oh, no, this is wow. our Robin. And Jesus. it fits It fits perfectly. So that's it. That's going in the book. You know, boom, straight away. It's in the book. But things like that, you know, you start thinking, hang on a minute. It's like there's a couple of other bits where uh, after 16 years, he becomes a hermit. And he goes, <laughs> off, to, goes off to live in this cave, in this, this abbey. So... You go off and you check out the legend at this abbey, and lo and behold, it's there. They've had the same legend for three or four hundred years written down about, you know, this this hermit, this military hermit staying in this hermitage, which is still there. And then you look at things like, okay, what was the end of Robin? 
Well, the end of Robin, believe it or not, is he's one probably, probably one of the Northern Barons that went down to London for the signing of Magna Carta. And you start to look at Magna Carta and it actually says, this is this uh, tickled me up when I found this out. Basically, the, te- the King John had borrowed money from the Knights Templar and the Knights Templar weren't happy with the king at all. So when all these barons turn up going, you know, come on, sign Magna Carta. Come on, give us, a, give us the barons' rights. Mm. What do the Knights Templar do? They grab King John. They actually grab him. They imprison him and say, you will sign. You are going to sign. <laughs> you know, you do not have any choice. So uh, the Templar's involvement in that is, is, is exciting, to say the least. So Robin, oh, Robin would have been all over that. There's no doubt about that at all. Right. And then even the king, I mean, I mentioned this in the book, even the king himself, John, he's, he's broke and he decides he's going to try and enlist the help of the Scots. So that's not a good idea normally, it's, you know, but yeah. he decides he's going to do it. Now, at this point, King, I think it's Malcolm, Malcolm III of Scotland, is married to one of uh, the wicked King John's daughters. So he thinks, oh, I'm in here. You know, it's family. I'll, I'll, I'll go and ask him for help. Now, you can see what's happening because he goes all he goes all the way up the East Coast. So he's, he's over there trying to stay the hell out of this red territory. So he goes all the way up his own territory, up the East Coast. When he gets to Scotland, the King of Scotland basically laughs at him and just says, no, you've had it, mate. You're not going to get any help off me. You're a complete failure, total disaster. No, no money, no troops, no nothing. So he turns around, John, and starts coming back south. When he gets to the wash, this this area of Bogland, that's when he famously loses his treasure, King's treasure. He loses it. He's trying to cross the wash. He doesn't know what the tides are. And he sends his, his carts with all this treasure in across the wash. And they sink. They go down in the mud. So not only is he completely broke, not only now does he have no way of paying his army and his mercenaries, he's just lost his treasure, which probably included most of his religious artefacts as well. So he's just gone down. So he ends up he ends up at uh, Swanshead Abbey, which is just past the wash. He ends up there, which is a Knights Templar Abbey. Now, at the Abbey, he tries to steal the treasure off the altar. Now, this is this is proper. <laughs> this is real history. <laughs> this is total re- King John style. King John, now, in the process of stealing all of this treasure, he also kills the abbot. Three days later, he dies mysteriously of poisoning. Now, this is where you start to get into. You're not telling me that the monks didn't have you know think right. Oh, we've sorry. had enough. We're getting rid of this king. Exactly. And they poison him. Now, he's, he's making a rush for... He's, he's got this hunting lodge at Clipstone, and he's got medical assistance there, and he's safe. And so when he dies, when he actually dies, he's making a rush for this hunting lodge. He's trying to get to Clipstone because he knows he can get medical help, and he can be defended there. But when you look at the layout of what's going on there, it's all about Robin Hood. It's right. all, you know, it's Templars, it's intrigue, it's it's poisonings, mm-hmm. it's, you know, he has to stay on his territory because he can't go and fight the foresters and get through to the other side, you know, and it's just amazing. The whole book, everything, like I say, the actual documented written history of Britain fits perfectly, you know, so right. I'm, I'm not treading on any toes in, in producing the book. It is right. quite an interesting piece of history. It, it, it you know, takes account right. of all of these these things happening well it's interesting because there's just not that many structures left um 
where to to collaborate some of this unless like you say like the church where it was rebuilt and then you know restored so was king john's treasure ever found i mean come on you know where it is you'd have to go looking for it well do you know what come on now (laughs) well all right i'll tell you i'll tell you a story this is not in the book but this this is just me again um i used to know uh, a dowser uh, who was the best dowser in Lancashire? Right. Uh, John John was his name. I won't give anything more away. Than that. Oh, he's, passed, he's passed away now. He's Aww. died. But John, John anyway was was this famous Lancashire dowser, and he made a couple of dowsing rods for me, and he helped me out on some of my archaeological sites and this, that, and the other. Uh, and he just came out with it one day, and he just went, "I've been looking for the treasure in the wash, and I think I found it." So I'm like. Hang on a minute. They've been looking for this for, you know, 800 years. And uh, he's just gone out there and he's used his dowsing rods and he's found it. I said, how do you know? He said, look, he said, I've got a DVD here, he said, because we filmed it. And he handed me this DVD and I'm thinking, okay, maybe he's made this up. Maybe he's gone a bit nuts, you know, or whatever. But, and this this is it, but the wash has silted up. So there are allotments now growing food on this silted up area where he pinpoints this treasure. And you can see in this in this DVD, there's an American team with a core drill. They bring in this massive core drill and it literally is spray painted across on the ground. You know what I mean? X marks yeah. the spot. Right. Put the drill in here and we'll see what happens. So the drill goes in and the drill comes out. And they take the core out, and sure enough, I mean, it's it's an enormous amount of distance down. You're talking 23 foot or something like that down underground. It's miles down, far too far. But they right. pull the core out, they separate the core, and partway in this core is a piece of a medieval treasure chest. Wow. So he's hit, he's hit it. Wow. Absolutely bullseye. He's gone straight through the side of one of these chests on a cart containing treasure. I think there's bits, there's other bits of timber come up as well. And it, it all dates to the right period. And it is very clearly, you can see it in this DVD, very right. clearly a right. piece of the treasure. So he has gone down in history as being the guy who found the treasure in the wash. Now, the the, the consequences of that, of course, is that nobody's ever going to get down that low. It's way below the water table. It's way down below 800 years of mud. But they know where it is. That's the thing. They've, they've hit this chest, so they know where it is. From a dowser with two pieces of metal. Which is phenomenal to me that he could pick it up that high up well uh, i mean dowsing is phenomenal uh, to me i i have a huge amount of respect for people who really really know the craft it's it's an art form you know a lot of people oh we can douse no no some people are just they themselves are that are that that energy source well, he has it, he has gone into history as one yeah. of the nation's best dowsers. I mean, he did it his entire life. I think he yeah. was in his late seventies or early eighties when he passed wow. away, and that yeah. was like ten years ago. Right. Uh, but I've, I've still got the DVD. I've kept the DVD. I have no idea what I'm going to do with it because it's just well, it's a piece of history, isn't it? Yes. Um, but that's a my personal connection. I mean, I knew the guy, you know, and it, it it's yeah. um, and I was one of the first to see this. It's it's not 
excuse me, it's not a commercially recorded DVD. Right, it's, it's just, just a, a regular... download of what they filmed, you know. So I have um, to ask, is, has this ever been, like, did he ever go to to any of, of the museums or try to get investors to even, like, attempt this? Or did, is it just documented? It's, well, I believe it's documented. Right. So it's gone into the, you know, the fines record for the country. Right. And I think yeah. one documentary maker... Uh, picked up on it at the time but that was that's 10 years ago so i don't know where yes. that's gone uh, whether it made the news or not i mean we have over here we have regional news items right. so it may have actually gone as far as as you know terrestrial television regional news right, right. um but the, i mean i've got all the unedited footage it's all on this disc i'm so pleased he gave it to me you know because uh otherwise yes. it would have been it would have been lost but that's not even in the book i mean we're now we've we've gone off piste again we've gone i off know into but the, we do that uh, and <laughs> and it happens the the flat earth it's associated again, you know? but it's 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 just kind of like you know yeah. off its own little thing i just i find it interesting yeah. because you know you 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 hear of all the stories you know okay we'll go back on track so he was a hero. Robin Hood was considered a hero to yes. many people from different areas um, in his time. Do you think? Do you think that he's 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 he would still be revered as a hero? It depends, I suppose, uh, on your attitude. Or are you just ruining the whole folklore, Mark? No, I'm not going to ruin the folklore. No, it depends entirely I'm on you. with you. <laughs> no, it depends on your attitude towards uh, right. Richard the Lionheart or King John, to be right. honest with you. Because right. uh, the same friend of mine who, who found this Roman road, the, the landscape archaeologist, yes. he said, well, he said King John actually wasn't that bad. I said, oh, what do you mean? He said, well, he wasn't necessarily the wicked King John. John's gone into legend as being wicked right. because basically he was a tax collector. You know, he was the best, you know, heavy-handed yeah. tax collector Britain ever had, basically. But the reason he was like that was because Richard the Lionheart was spending all the country's money. He went off and blew it all on crusades, you know, and like you say, fancy living and, you know, whatever. Yes. Uh, you know, that and was never here. So poor old John being the next son of, of uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, she, you know, he, he got dumped with the job that he got dumped with. Mm -hmm. So if you think John's okay and, and you think perhaps that, you know, he just died of eating too many peaches and eels up at, you know, uh, when he was out doing his thing to Scotland, uh, right. if you kind of take a, that view, then Robin's a bad guy because he's supporting the rebels. You know, he's supporting mm -hmm. the rebellion. If, on the other hand, you think Richard the Lionheart's the good guy, which, from a Templar perspective and from a crusading point of view, yeah, yeah, he's got merits. There's no doubt about that at all. Then you're going to support you're going to support Robin because right. that's quite firmly where Robin is. Um, and this idea that he never robbed from the rich to give to the poor. In actual fact, what he used to do was rob from the rich and then give it back to the rich because the idea was to show people up. Yeah, because there's a particular thing where the 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 abbot of York has mm. money off off a, a knight. So what Robin does is he goes and robs the abbot, and then gives it back to the knight. So you know it's all upper echelon stuff. It's not you know lower so, down. So the little guy really, you know, yeah, I mean, really is, he was like not, a hero, and realistically yeah. they got nothing out of it. 
Well, yeah, in the original stories, he's quite violent. He's quite abrupt. You know, he kills sheriffs. He kills opposition. Uh, wow. You know, he's, he's he's quite a rough character, which which makes it all all the more believable. You know, mm -hmm. uh, as, as him being a medieval forester, was he a hero? Well, uh, he certainly sets the tone. Mm -hmm. um, anyone, I think, that goes into rebellion against the medieval crown is going to take Robin as a hero. There's no doubt about that. Um, especially after John, you know, once they got rid of John and the royalty starts, you know getting its act together again after that mm -hmm. uh you know over here we have lots of issues lots of things going on uh, and then you've got the dissolution of the templars that starts to creep up through the 1200s they get phenomenally powerful phenomenally rich mm -hmm. um you know they're all over the world doing everything that the templars do i mean robin to be honest with you he lives quite a long time he lives well into possibly up, up to being into his 90s it's it's after 1215 i think it's 1217 when robin dies mm -hmm. so he dies as an old guy which makes perfect sense because you know if you're a knight and you're a forester and you know mm -hmm. you're doing what you're doing you're going to be fighting fit you're going to be absolutely you know there at the top of the game mm -hmm. uh, and being a noble he wouldn't have suffered from any of the you know the difficulties that peasants had he wouldn't be malnourished he wouldn't be anything like that no. you know um, no. so, he, so he lives a long life and he dies very late on by which point like i said earlier his, his son takes over the mantle as it were and goes right. off and fights for the edwards uh, you're in a different royal situation then which right. has caused endless endless confusion to historians doing the research because <laughs> you've got yeah. him apparently still alive in the reigns of the edwards you know so everyone's like, oh it's got to be early 1200s you know uh well they've blown it basically they've fallen into the trap that that's actually his son that mm -hmm. carried on serving royalty after his death um right. i think on right. balance i would say he's a hero i would say so um mm -hmm. I, I, but not for the reason that people might think i think he was a hero because he understood exactly how to play the game at that point in history. Right. You know, he was absolutely bang on the money right through his whole life. And he lived a tremendously long time and he was incredibly successful for so many different reasons and always stood on the right side of everything that was expected of him, you know, right. uh, which in my eyes makes him a hero, you know, um, I would think so. I think people fall in love with legends. They fall in love with folklore because you just, especially when it comes from a time where life is so hard, everybody wants yeah. to know there's somebody fighting for them, even if he's not, <laughs> you know? Well, I don't know. I think he did. I think he stuck up for the ordinary man. Yes. You know, the fact that he was a forester, I mean, he was only a forester, but he was willing to take on the king and give him yes. a good hiding, you know, for being where he shouldn't be. And right. clearly all of his, you know, merry men, who incidentally weren't all men, there's a, quite a few ladies in there as well, all of that band of people that gathered around him, they weren't nobles, you know, they weren't right. all from noble families. Um, a few of the major players were. Little John comes from, from the Lytell family. Uh, and like I say, the Scathlocks, the Scarlets, they come from another fairly well known family and so on the marmions you know mm -hmm. um even friar friar took um was he was a, a proper friar he was a white canon so right. he would have come from quite a high up background but but they're all out there with everybody else if you like mm -hmm. standing up against john you know john was the problem taxing the north to death right. so um you know they're they're sort of how can i put it 
they're nobles, but they're people who were still connected, you know, to the general population. Right. Um, and the storytellers, you know, that's how he got into legend. The storytellers just got hold of that and ran with it, you know. Um, right. I think but the I reason... I think the reason he ended up the way he did, by the way, and the fact that all the stories have suddenly turned into legend, you can blame the age of printing for that, really, because by the time you get into the 1400s and the 1500s and the 1600s and all that, they have no idea what life was like in medieval England. Right. You know, they don't know that. So it's that popularisation of, right. of the early legends that, that uh, results in him going the way he went, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that makes sense if fell in line with a lot of the whole, you know, grim tales and everything else. As you know, you had your heroes, you had your villains, and there's always had to be a hero, always had to be a villain. It's fascinating to me, though, that there really were the merry men. It's almost like the one part of the legend, which is, yeah, it's there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's like there's something that holds true to the legend part of everything. Well, it's, it's like uh, Little John's a good example. Uh, Heathersage, or Heathersage, if you pronounce it, there's a church there. Right. And outside the front door of, of Heathersage Church is his grave. And it's always been his grave. And if you go inside the porch, his gravestone's there as well. So there's no doubt right. about that. We know exactly right. where he is. Um, right. You know, uh, right. Little John's bow and his hat and a few other bits and bobs used to hang in the church up to about, 250 300 years ago so wow. there's plenty, plenty of physical evidence for him the right. marmions like i say over at abbots bromley I'm, I'm just talking history you know the barons of chester and charlie and the castles right. they own all that again it's history it's archaeology right. loxley right. really exists right. it's funny because loxley as a name as a village is always associated with land owned by the barons of chester so it's it's so Robin of Loxley would be... Yeah, would, would logically right be there. You know, it's funny, actually, yeah. because uh, I kind of... So by the time I got to the end of writing the book, it was like putting together the pieces of a jigsaw. So you had, oh, yeah, there's there's the Marion piece, you know, and then there's the Little John piece, there's the Scarlet mm. piece, and, you know, and then you had plays that were written by Skelton for Henry VIII and told you, tells you all about where these characters come from and who they are and what they did, and then you had all the archaeology, all the geography, you know, all these pieces coming together, and you were just left with this one piece in the middle that was Robin Hood-shaped. And the rest of the jigsaw puzzle doesn't make any sense until you, you put that last piece in. So it's like you can prove everything else. Everything else right. is a doddle, absolute doddle to prove everything else. Right. But trying to nail that one piece, that one bit that's Robin Hood, that was the hardest bit to do of the entire book, was right. just nailing him down, you know, and getting some factual information. But, and this is the... the the real point of it all i did it i did actually achieve that because the book is quite long it's not short you know it's um, right. it, it's Lots a decent yeah. so how, how did robin die okay there's two stories there's there's two um in fact it's a nice brilliant question great conclusion <laughs> to this okay you, you had to know i was going to ask <laughs> well yeah Inspiring <laughs> Apparently, you've got this legend that's associated with Kirklees, Kirklees Priory. And I'll tell you what the legend is, okay? The legend is that he goes to Kirklees Priory because he's feeling a bit ill, and it's run by one of his relatives. The, the abbess there is one of his relatives. But this relative is knocking off another one of his relatives called Red Roger. This is where Red Roger of Don, Doncaster comes in. Now, 
basically Roger is going to inherit everything that Robin, you know, has the potential to inherit if Robin is out of the way. Now, I've only found that out by looking at the family trees with the characters involved. So basically what he does is he bribes the abbess and says, when you come to bleed Robin, just leave him and let him bleed to death. Which, I mean, bleeding was a regular process. They used to do that quite regularly with leeches mm -hmm. and all sorts of things, little knives in medieval England. Mm -hmm. So he goes to Kirkley's and he's there and she leaves him to die. Now, he, he twigs what's going on, but he twigs what's going on just a bit too late. And when little John comes to visit him, little John realises that he's actually on his deathbed. So little John lifts up Robin. Robin gets hold of his bow and he says, where this arrow lands... That's where you're to bury me. So he goes, Poing! fires this bow. And where the arrow lands, that's where they bury him. Now, at this point, the whole story just goes and falls apart. There's no way, there's no way on God's earth that someone's been that's that's about to be bled to death can pull a hundred and sixty pound draw weight you longbow and loose an arrow. Which, when you go to Kirkley's, you look where the grave is. It's like four, five, six hundred meters. There's right. no way you could possibly have fired that. Now, the grave, and this is the beauty of it, in the 1700s, the owners of the estate decided they were going to dig this grave up and settle it once and for all to find out whether Robin was buried there. Now, this, this is beautiful because this is antiquarian archaeology. This is way before the days of proper archaeology. <laughs> so they get stuck in with the shovel, and guess what they find? Not only do they not find a burial, they actually find nothing. Nothing at all. Not even wow. a hole. Wow. There's not even a hole under this grave. There's, there's just nothing. It is The whole thing is a folly. It's completely fake. And the other thing with the name Kirklees, Church Lees actually just means a church in a field. So when it says in the Robin Hood legends that he's buried at Kirklees, it, it could literally be anywhere. However, through a lot of research and the work of this poet called Skelton, who went through all the records in the 1500s, he's a star, loves Skelton to bits, because he's writing for Henry VIII, you know, so if he gets yes. any of this play wrong, Henry's just going to be off with his head, you know, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you oh, don't yeah. argue with Henry VIII. <laughs> so he writes all this detail down, and he also writes down the last words of Robin Hood. So we've lost all of his original documents, they've all gone, but we've still got his play. Now, it says, I want to be buried under the Abbey walls in Wakefield. And it says that in this play, in this skeleton's play, it says Wakefield. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a big problem because you're looking at Wakefield and you go, well, hang on a minute, there's no Abbey. There's, there's no records of any medieval Abbey. So <laughs> where on earth is he buried? Fast forward to 2016 and they're doing up, they're renovating the Abbey. And the archaeologists dig up the floor to find that there's a medieval abbey under the floor. Yay! Oh. And, guess, and guess what? There are three wow. burials. They analyse three of the burials, and they're all skeletons from the time of Robin. They tie up exactly with Robin's death date in the early 1200s. So we know, we know that they were building that abbey at Wakefield at precisely the exact time that Robin was buried. Now, talk about coincidence. At that point, I'm just wrapping the book up. So I had to put that in. 
I had to put it in. So you're talking right. proper archaeologists, proper archaeology, analysis of bone remains, you know, mm -hmm. archaeological report of excavation. It'll never be done again because they've now laid the floor and sorted all of that out. But that's where Robin, that's where Robin is. I'm convinced of that. He's under the floor. He's where he says he was in Wakefield. Right. Now, he's, he's not, I don't think he's one of the three burials that were up at the top level. But I certainly think he's there. You know what I mean? He's, he's right. there adjacent to one of those walls. Right, now, so it's not marked, unfortunately. Well, and, and if they'd have found it, there would have been a sword, some arrow tips, yes. and possibly remains of his bow, because he was buried with all of those. Now then, this is going to make the hair on your body stand on end this, because when they did this part of the, the abbey up, right, they decided they were going to put this floor in, and it's a beautiful floor, beautiful pattern floor, but then they had to replace the altar in that part of the church. So where these skeletons were and where the medieval abbey actually ends, where the original altar would have been, they decide they're going to put this massive square wooden table. Now, it's it's a big table. It's probably about what, three metres by three metres. So they walk in with this table and they go, let's put this in. And when you look at the table, it's a giant Templar cross. <laughs> come on <laughs> and it's right over the place where he's supposed to be buried now you look at that and you think now hang on a minute who knew who knew what about what you know who's been yeah, talking about right, my, right. Book, my book wasn't in print at that point now it's it's in the dvd it's in the documentary so folks go check out life and times the real robin hood on oh, youtube i will <laughs> closing section of that i mean we look at a couple of different possibilities for where he might be buried but the last shot of me walking out of wakefield you've got this enormous you know temple across altar right there at the front of the shot you can't miss it so, so uh, honestly honest, you think he's under the altar well, if, if he's not if he's not directly under the altar, then he's certainly within you know a couple of meters of where, they, of where they put it, and and that's where right. he is. He's under the medieval parts of that uh, Abbey right. at Wakefield. That's where I think he is, absolutely. And as far as I know, I'm the only person to actually come out and say that. So that's uh, exclusive. You know, to put that kind of an altar down, you must. So whoever put it there must have had some inkling. Like, it makes you wonder, you know, did the information through the family, perhaps, within the circle, you know, all these connected dots all come into within the circle and pass the story down? Somebody knew. Yeah, yeah. Somebody knew because um, somebody would have had to inter him. Well, yeah, somebody would have had to bury him and uh, somebody would have had to record his last words. It's yeah. a shame because, I mean, the last, I think it's the last couple of, words in that part of the play have gone they've disappeared so it gives you some of his details but the last word literally the last thing he said before he died is not recorded because it's been lost but we have enough information you know to know what was going on i think a lot of the documents were lost during the dissolution of the monasteries and things like that when all the libraries were destroyed and then again You've got Oliver Cromwell, English Civil War. So, you know, mm. that comes along in the mid-1600s. So much of the background information that Skelton had access to has gone, but mm. he did a good job of putting together the information that he did put together because mm -hmm. he gathered as much as he could find at that time. I mean, this is, this is a brilliant thing as well. If you want to be a Robin Hood scholar, okay, <laughs> the surviving documents, are you ready for this? 
there are seven of them. That's it. So whereas there was, what, 800 nod I had to go through to do King Arthur, I mean, that was ridiculous. It took, you know, years and years. There are right. only actually seven surviving documents that can be dated before about 1450. So there, that's it. That's all you've got. That's everything you've got to work with. Um, so in that sense, putting, you know, the legendary side of it together, that was relatively straightforward. Right. So... There, there's a photo that is, of course, floating around online where it's supposed to be the grave of Robin Hood. Have you seen that one? Um, it will probably be, yeah. Uh, yeah, 1600s. That's the 1600s one. Um, Nathaniel Johnson, uh, or is it Nathaniel Book? Um, I'd have to look it up. Anyway, his name's Nathaniel. It's 16... 63 i think it was he did an engraving of the grave of robin hood now the problem with that is that it's a stone it's basically a tombstone right. and all we all we can tell is that it had an inscription around it and the cross on it is templar that's all all we can tell but Thank that stone you. that stone could have been brought from anywhere do you know what i mean right. it's more likely to be a leftover stone from Kirklees right. priory you know it's just something that's been hanging around in the priory and they've right. ended up you know that that's where it's ended up but the cross does look remarkably similar to the one that's on the tomb of little john the two crosses look like you know someone's having a go at the same order you know using the same iconography uh, right. which is interesting right so um if robin's son robin junior <laughs> uh goes on and, and basically takes over the helm would robin's followers have followed followed him as well and could this have added to additional confusion well well um there are a group there is actually a group of archers um in london believe it or not who then call right. themselves robin hood's men so um there's no reason why robin hood's men wouldn't have grouped up uh, grouped together up here in nottingham you know that right. would have happened as well right. so you just i said this when i did the arthur book you know at the end of the day what you've got to do is take all these pieces of information mm -hmm. and then put them in date order you know it frustrates the living daylights out of me when people right. write books <coughs> and then they don't try and make a chronology out of the information you know what mm -hmm. came before what so people have made this assumption that, you know, the band of merry men carried on and, you know, on and on and on and on and so on. But it's it's only when you actually link them all together and you look at the dates that you start to realize that most of them are actually after, later than, his mm -hmm. son, you know. So there's him in the 1100s, then his son's alive in the 1200s. And then, like I say, you, you get exactly the effect you would expect. Everything then starts to get bigger and bigger so mm. if, if you imagine robin is the tip of a pyramid then the pyramid gets bigger and bigger so there are more and more and more references to robin hoods you know and people call robin and mm. hood and ode and odo and hoed and so on and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger but it's it's a bit like you know once star wars came out everybody's son was called luke you know, it's it's that kind of you know, it's the same thing. Well, you know. I, I think also as descendants move into different areas, especially if you go overseas, you know, they the name splits because there's so many, so they'll 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 change it 
And this is where so many people lose that ancestral stuff because it's like, well, you know, this, our name yeah. over here was this. And we're just like, well, that's a pretty far cry between the two. Yeah. And it makes well, you wonder if they, you know, as they started moving out throughout the country, if they just started. You've got an interesting coincidence as well. And that is um, a friend of mine who was studying the Barons of Chester. Right. Totally different. Uh, she's an academic. All she does is study records for right. Staffordshire. So she ran across these records of, of, of the Barons of Chester. So she started looking at that. And then right. she started noticing where the barons had land. Now, barons, after William the Conqueror, ended up owning patches of land all over the place. Mm -hmm. The first thing she noticed was that all over these patches was the name Loxley. But the second thing she noticed was the name Hode or Hood popping up in all of these areas. And she said, oh, I wonder why that is. So she went off and did a bit more research Guess where the Ch the Chester storytellers end up going? They end up the the, the bards, the storytellers, the you know uh, performers and people yes. that do play the Robin Hood and all this. They're doing them on the same land that's owned by the Barons of Chester. So the earliest names of Hode and Ode and all the rest of it, like you say, move to the areas that are then right. associated with the Barons, and then only from there do they start to then spread elsewhere but it, it's very much like moving country to country they're moving county to county yeah yes yes Same so then process. he would have gone by the name there was like loxley being an association to him as well well yeah yeah so it's, it's aside actually, from just the town yeah when right. you get to the end of the 1200s and you're tipping into the 1300s you could have robin of loxley in right. sussex well, I think they robin, made a film and that's what yeah you could have robin, robin of loxley in cheshire then you have robin of loxley in nottinghamshire you know and right they're everywhere because they are you know right it's, right it's exploded right. you know it's become a popular sort of a popular movement it's um, yeah it seems to go in cycles as well you have the diehards who have been at this like you know the whole time because they're, they're, the interest is there um and then you just have these that cycle through you know, yeah. like the show could air, for example, and then you'll have, a, you know, people, you'll have people out there who's like, well, I, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if I can go visit this place. I wonder if I can find additional information. But I guess, you know, I don't, is there any additional information to find or do you think you've pretty much found it all? Um, I, I think I've sort of, I've sort of nailed it all. I think I've, I've probably got the principal pieces of the oldest surviving information. Right. But, as with everything else, I don't think I don't think I've got a hundred percent. I think there will be more out there. Um, in fact, I think I say I expect more to turn up. Um, I mean, two areas that I didn't investigate perhaps as much as I should. One was military, because during the wars, wars of the Roses in the fourteen hundreds, mm. the Nottinghamshire archers had a black and white checkered flag, which is Templar colours with Robin Hood embroidered in the centre in green. So the archers of Nottingham were actually militarily fighting under the banner of Robin. So that's like, oh, clearly there's that's more crazy. to be done there, you know, right. military. Right. And then uh, there's court records then from Nottinghamshire in the, uh, again, in the 1400s, where there's this trial uh, where this uh, person's been tried as a bandit. And it's in the legal records, it actually says, um, he was uh, committing banditry, if you like, as if he were the band of Robin Hood. So it's it's there in the legal records as well. So within a couple of hundred years of, of Robin's lifetime, the military are using it, and so's, so's the 
the court system. So I think there's more to be found there as well. I think there's more overlaps, um, right. which may go back further than the 1400s. You know, right. uh, that's, a, that's an avenue I didn't I didn't pursue to its full extent. I don't think. Well, I think then you're you know you're falling into where everybody else does. You know, you're probably going to be yeah. getting a lot of, you know, um, crossed over information and dealing with descendants and and so on. Um, as an archaeologist with connections, <laughs> <laughs> as we all have, <laughs> we'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> aren't you a little bit curious, like? I know in England, like many European countries as well, um, when you excavate, when you go in and you know it's a historical site, you excavate everything before you build over it. Do you, I mean, do you think this is a pretty historical figure in England's history? Just like when they found Richard III under a parking lot. I mean, yeah. Isn't there an urge somewhere in there to, to find this guy? If I had the funding to do it, because that's that's always the case. Big money. If somebody came along and said, you know, yeah, we really like what you've done. We like your documentary. We like your book. We're going to do a program on this and take it to the next level. So right. let's say somebody came in. That is technology now that we could X-ray the floor yes. and have a look properly you know, uh, the ground penetrating radar, the geophysics, etc. It's it's advanced now to a point where yes. we could certainly, certainly have a look at other additional burials under the church, you know, mm. under the floor in Wakefield. Mm -hmm. um, no doubt about that at all. There are a couple of other sites as well that I'd really like to go and have a look at. You know, I'd like to have a nosy at. Um, okay. That are associated with Robin, so okay. uh, yeah, there's definitely an investigation there. It could be it could be taken archaeologically to to another level, um, right. but it's it's just a budget consideration. That's all it is. Literally, it's just down to. But would you have permission to be able to do something like that? Because especially um, when you're dealing with another abbey on top of it, like they're they're yeah, pretty uh, protective of their. Well, it's. I think you started this question with that magical word, archaeologist. I think yeah. if it was a production where I was involved, I've got ministerial qualifications. I am a vicar. That's what I am. Right. So I okay. can deal with. I can deal with the ecclesiastical establishment. Okay. Um, and I can also deal with the archaeological establishment, and right. to some extent, also fortunately, with television and production, I'm, mm. I'm okay with that as well. So because all those things come together, I think if I was involved in what they were doing or somebody at least with the same skill set, um, I think they would probably go, yeah, yeah I wouldn't mind. Yeah, go I on, think it would make for a good production. Yeah. I'm surprised oh, yeah. that, you know, you don't have somebody from like, you know, history or sky coming along and saying, oh, okay, we'll fund this because oh, yes, we would love to get more information. My curiosity in finding, you know, the grave of Robin Hood is like you say, yes, he would be buried with, with, with certain things like a sword or like, you know, his bow, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, but it would make you wonder if he was buried ceremoniously, like in a ceremonial way, like the Templars would bury you. And that would really be something to see because that's that, I mean, that just sort of ties everything in a nice little bow the big yeah, knot on it. <laughs> I mean, generally speaking, people like to 
turn things into legends. Yes. But they don't like to go the other way. They don't like legends to turn into reality. That's that's something I've discovered over the right. years. So, you know, there were some folks have been, most people have been quite accepting of the King Arthur book, but there has been critics. I'm glad right. to say most of the critics are not academics. Right. So, you know, but people don't like that you know, to be converted into reality. Robin Hood is a good example. If we yeah. actually found Robin Hood and we go, hey, there he is, it, it somehow it takes the gloss off the legend, you know. I mean, the new yeah. book I've just got out now, Europe's Roswell, 40 Years Since Impact, which looks at uh, UFO crash debris. I think we've well, covered we, we that. We did that yeah, one the last time, that, yeah. didn't we? Yeah. Who wants Who wants to know that UFOs are real? You know, people prefer to have them as a legend, you know, as a ghost. As, a, as an image, you know, I don't know because now we've got disclosure. Now people, yeah. people now I think have had time to digest it and they, they want it. They want to know yeah. more about it because they're curious when you're looking at something like a legend, such as yeah. Arthur or Robin hood legends. It's like you say, they want to believe in a hero. They want to believe in something that's, that's grander perhaps than, than what it is. And it, I agree. I think if you take it to the point where it's like, yeah, a real guy here lived, breathed, ate, drank, yeah, yeah. had a wife, had a child, you know, yeah, like yeah. It, it's not, you know, like, it's not like the, the beautiful love affair made Marion and King John always trying to steal her away. You know, like there's so much to it's, it all. You're right. It's it's quite brutal. I mean, it's quite brutal because yeah. he didn't he didn't get married. He had kids out of what we would regard as out of wedlock. You know, right. uh, he right. he killed people. I mean, he he kills yeah. one of the bounty hunters that comes looking for him, cuts his head off, and sticks the severed head on the end of his bow. So oh, he's, he's, he's quite brutal. Yeah, you know, he was nasty um, as well. <laughs> he, he, he nasty as well. You know, he, right. he beats he beats up the king. He, he kills right. monks in another right. story. Uh, you know, um, it, 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 he's rough. He, he is a very, very rough character, very hard. But those right. were the times he lived in, you know. Yes. Um, even the King John thing, you know, is it, is it a murder mystery or isn't it? Queen Victoria, who actually wrote her own family history and included King John, actually forbade some of the information that the researchers found from funny. being released. She stopped it. She said, you, you know, you're allowed to put out the... He died of, you know, food poisoning, but you're not allowed to put out the, the side where they're saying he was poisoned. And and there's equal evidence for both. Trust me, it really there really is. So the, the, there is this element of cover up, you know, trying to make right. everything sparkly and right. glossy. But now now we've hit the 21st century. I think in a sense, perhaps the pendulum is swinging the other way and people want to know the truth. Right. You know, that, that's the driving force behind disclosure. But there needs to be archaeological disclosure as well. We need to get real, you know. No, um, I agree. Which I think is probably my reason for, you know, having a go at Arthur and having a go at Robin Hood and, mm -hmm. and working on another book now that does the same thing for uh, for Jesus as a character, starts looking at the real version of him. That's going to go down like a pig in a synagogue, if you don't mind me saying so. Yeah, like a lead balloon. I can feel it going now. <laughs> oh. I'm, working, I'm working on a Templar book uh, as well that they might end up getting merged. Um, the working title's Keys to the Temple. Uh, and that's looking at issues as well, which are coming very sharply into 21st focus at the moment. Well, so, we certainly uh, like controversy here. So. Well, the, the funny thing is that the, the irony is that the, the book about Jesus, I've been working on that as long as I have the Arthur book. It's about 40 odd years again that I've been working on that one. 
Uh, that's, so, a, that's, yeah. a, that's a big pill to swallow. Uh, Only because, you know, the faithful. And it's not like you, you're dealing... But I mean, Arthur, Joseph of Arimathea, I mean, you've got major going, connections yeah. there. And it's, people it's could say... Yeah, we're okay with this. This is this is okay, but now <laughs> we're uh, wait, wait, to... wait till I drop the next one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be quite interesting. It's going to take me a while to do, so I don't expect anything anytime soon. But it, it's coming together. Right. It's definitely it's definitely coming together. And same but, with Templar uh, stuff. We love Templar stuff. Well, the Templars. The things the thing yeah. with the Templars is when. Well, they got out to the Middle East when they actually arrived there, you know, in 1099 on the First Crusade. They suddenly discovered what the reality was in their time. You know, it was nothing like they'd been told. You know, the the, the church view of, of, of that whole story and the material and, you know, the Gospels, the Bible and like, you know, they get out there and they start finding that there's actually some bits that didn't make it into the Bible. You know, the Sufis, the, the Islamic scholars are telling them different things you know mm -hmm. all of a sudden there's no snow and a manger in bethlehem at christmas you know none of that you know it, it's a grubby dirty old cave in the middle of a desert you know it's it's the reality the reality check that the templars got created the templars uh, and right. we are back on subject here that's why the templars were the yeah. way they were and they went the way they did and i think that's why in the end the catholic church was like eh, you know guys uh, we can't really support you any longer you know let's yeah, just take straying take, from the belief take yeah. you off the world stage you know right. um right i think they regretted doing it don't get me wrong i think the catholics at the end you know well they they, they put it in records that they said we can find nothing wrong you know right. with these they guys yes that's so it right. was political it was political. It was economic. That was, that was the stitch up at the end. Of course. Um, but the boy, were keepers a... of knowledge. You yeah, know, they, they absolutely. Were, they, they practiced the old ways and they yeah. held on to knowledge from different cultures because they were all part of different cultures. Yeah. I mean, th this is why I'm, I'm thinking of calling it keys to the temple, because at the end of the day, they they understood some of the basics, like the soul, you know, living in the yes. head, which is a Celtic belief, you know, yes. uh, yes. the origins of the grail, which at the end of the day is communion, which actually goes all the way back to into the B.C. period, into the Old Testament. Right. You know, there's all of that sort of thing they understood. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of carrying swords, for example, Jesus actually tells the disciples to go and buy swords to defend themselves. So, right. You could say, well, you know, there's the words of the master. You right. Know, uh, True. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, he drank, he hung out in pubs, you know, he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Things are not always, you can't always take it literal when you read something, especially you know, when you go that far back. Sometimes it was in metaphors. Sometimes it's, it had more to do with symbolism. Can't so wait I'm can't on wait to, your page, Mark. Yeah, I can't wait to put this book out. I mean, some of the things I've Me dug too. up are interesting. I've, I've, what I decided, actually mentally, because you can imagine, I mean, like there's, there's 800 odd different books you'd have to read for Arthur. You can't imagine how many books there are for the Bible. There's thousands of them. Oh. So I, I had to I had to put a stop to it. So right. I said, right, it, when we get to Constantine the Great, you know, when you're going into the 300s, right. I think I'll stop at that point. Anything written after that point is it's colored by Constantine and legalization of Christianity. Right. Yeah, you know, right. it's Romanized. 
But his so any, mother's any, quest for the holy relics is extremely interesting. Well, I, I could include all of that. I mean, that's right. acceptable because they, they were building what they were doing based on what was going on in the 200s. You know, that right. was their culture. Yes. But if it's basically if it's from zero to 100, 100 to 200 or 200 to 300 AD, right. then I'm going to include it. So you've got Dead Sea Scrolls, Nakam Library, like, you know, yes. all the extra. But then there has to be a cutoff. You've got to so, say, you so know. So are you you're going to tackle Gnosticism? as well oh yeah yeah i will i will tackle the gnostics um right right that's, well, that's because that came on to be you know the scenes from that point and the cathars and the well it, yeah it kind of goes in two directions because do you know yeah. what scholarly when you start getting scholarly the jury's out as to who's connected to who right. um and it's interesting because with the gnostics they've sort of they've put out the bits that they want to put out because commercially that yeah fantastic you know we'll sell books but the rest of gnosticism there's a lot there that's hidden that they haven't put out the Which, gnostics had some amazing they, amazing material well the stuff they put out was amazing so i can't imagine what they were Ooh. keeping to themselves but then you're getting into moloch and things like that oh once, once, people, you, once you start finding it out it okay, makes see, total, yes. total sense out of the templars well, the thing, temple, so moloch yeah. is now at the vatican well, you know, I'm uh, sorry. They put a statue out there. You know, there's something going on with that. Like, well, yeah, the I mean, the overlaps with the Old Testament. So don't just look at the AD. Look at the BC. You know, there's the stuff going on from the BC. Yeah, I, I prefer um, the older text, which brings us, yeah, you know, kind of full circle to what we we're talking mm -hmm. about as far as legends is. Yeah, people, our information has been suppressed. Yeah. I think we've been taught fairy tales and, and, and oral history. And a lot of oral history is just that, oral history. And sometimes it branches off and people take from it what they want. And the truth gets yeah. lost in the shuffle. Yeah. And it's hard to unravel all of that. So kudos for doing that because that's, you know, that's. I, I, I call it literary archaeology because, I mean, if you're in a hole with a trowel and you're digging back in time, the deeper you go, that's right. what you're after. You're after the the layers. You know, you're after an right. explanation. You're pulling, you know, an archaeological site apart based on its history going further back. Yes. You can do exactly the same thing with literature with right. the written records you can do the same you can go back and you can literally get rid of the stuff that they couldn't possibly have done uh, right. and then you're left with things that they could possibly have done and then you go and find the source material and you start to pick through that take mm -hmm. out bias take out like you say you know blind alleys rabbit holes people have gone down get rid of all of that nonsense right. and most most critically try and stick to your source material that's the academic side of it really mm -hmm. is getting hold of the oldest possible source materials uh which i'm glad to say biblically speaking in the last 20 30 40 years there's been tons tons of new stuff coming out all the time right. absolutely loads of source material so right. i think i think it's time for the benefit of the 21st century well I think it's I, time to make sense of it i think the public is demanding you know a degree of truth as much as they're going to give us but i also believe the powers that be are relinquishing a little bit more here and there, but so is archaeology. So yeah. are these structures that are just sort of surfacing, you know, yeah. because, yeah. you know, whatever the case may be, all of a sudden, wait, that's not a mountain, it's a pyramid. Or, <laughs> you know, technology is allowing us to find structures beneath the waves, 
yeah. beneath, you know, forest canopies, out of place artifacts are showing up where things are happening. I believe, as I say, I believe the planet has a way of giving up her secrets and maybe things that were important to hide way back then are not as important. So we're allowed to have little tidbits now. Yeah. Yeah. You've just got to be careful because yeah. those powers that be have changed the game um, a little bit. They're, they're playing a slightly different game and the slightly different game is disinformation. Yes. Just be very careful of the disinformation because one minute you might have a piece of information that there's a pyramid somewhere and it's dead right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you've got like eight or 10 or, you know, 20 odd others that are not. That just right. pile, they pile in on top. Go, hey, we've got one of those. Yeah, we've got one too. Oh, right. look, there's another one over here. Everybody so just not... wants to mask it and take away from the significance. Yeah, just, so just to get you to change gears a little bit. Yeah, if you take interest in any of these things, you know, yes. just push into the stories that little bit further, yes. and just try and find out what the background information is. I mean, I I do it, but I'm sure if everybody did it, they, right. you know the truth will out in the end. And that's, that's what happens. You know, people do find out which bits are right. Which bits hey, are wrong. Sometimes things are hidden in plain sight. Other times you, you do have to dig and you can't take it at face value. You really have to do your own research. Well, it's like 500 years ago, you know, the bloke Skelton writing that play and he put, you know, Wakefield that's 500 years ago. And then all of a sudden, Whoa, 500 years later, it turns out to be Wakefield. <laughs> It's, you know what I mean? We've just got 500 years of, you know, right. rubbish movies and men in tights and, yes. you know, you name it. We've gone through all this rubbish for years and years. And all of a sudden it turns out that actually the truth was right in the first place. You know, that's right. where we started. So it, I think that's going to happen a lot in the 21st century. I think lots of, you know, I'm not going to knock anybody's career, but there's lots of people out there who are not particularly good pseudo-archaeologists. And I think a lot of that will just vanish over time and the right. only stuff you're going to be left with you know forget the name forget the face forget all that because the the truth is the material itself and certainly on my journey the more truth i found out the more shocking and intriguing yeah. and mysterious the truth has turned out to be it's like, so whoa you know whoa yeah it's so exciting <laughs> i i think people you know there's some, there are folks out there that would be just like oh i couldn't just sit there in a hole all day and scrape mm. and you know i mean i i've i've done it um yeah. you know just at being invited to dig in a hole for eight hours when i was on vacation i didn't want to be at the beach with a bunch of people and i just sat there watching and they must have felt sorry for me they're like yeah come on down and, and i was able to, <laughs> to fiddle around a little bit and i'll tell you like eight hours later the sun was going down and i didn't want to stop i think when you find yeah. something and you yeah. lay your hands on something historical and old and you just know that it was a part of of, of something to me, I always say something great because it managed to survive. Oh, well, the same thing, the same identical process and the same feeling is true of dealing with documentation because yes. I, was, I was reading, what was I reading the other day? I was Anyway, I was reading a, a gospel translation that's only recently come out because they've only just found it. It's a Coptic manuscript and they've Ooh. pulled this translation Ooh. off it. Yeah. Uh, and there are some quotes in there which are interesting. And right. the way this tra translation has been put together, it's like a notebook. So it's got, it's got the sayings of Jesus in there, but they're not linked. You know what I mean? Somebody's just gone, well, there's one over here. We'll have that. There's another one over right. here. We'll have that. You know, Joe down the road remembers this. Bill remembers this. Right. You know, Debbie remembers this and so on and so on. And they've, all they've done is just written them all out as a list. 
Right. But some of these are not the ones you've ever seen before. So stumbling on something like that, and then it's either first or second century. So you're looking at source material at that period um, right. because clearly it, it's, I mean, you know, John who wrote John's Gospel and Revelation, a few other things, he only died at like the age of 90 odd. So you're either side of 100 AD, he drops dead. Everything after 100 AD is only one generation. Right. You know, these people met, saw, heard, talked to eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, for, and for me to find that, I'm like, you know, great. As an archaeologist, I've never dug up gold or silver. I've never found anything like, you know, the, you know, right. gold, gold and treasure. But for me, that's treasure. You know, that's finding treasure. something like that, it's like, wow. And once that happens, you're hooked. That's it. You right. know, then I'm, I'm in danger of becoming a recluse, you know, a hermit. <laughs> not, not being, nobody's going to see me for the next two years, you know, because I'm going to be right. far, too, far too busy doing the research. Well, you best keep in touch with that because we know there's some good stuff coming. Oh, yeah, trust me, there will be. There'll be plenty of stuff coming. Uh, from, from I, I love it. And yeah. I've certainly loved, you know, our, our afternoon. It's always informative. It's a lot of fun. We bounce around, but somehow everything we sort of bounce around comes yeah. back to the topic. Somehow yeah, yeah. we're and and I love that about about conversing with you. It's just always informative on so many well, different levels. Now you've now you've got the book on screen. Yes. I would just say to anybody that's searching for either the program, the documentary on YouTube, yes. or they want to buy the book, take note of the way we spelled Robin Hood. It's R O B Y N H O D E because we had to do that because there's so many other books called Robin Hood out there. We had to make the the you know Life and Times cover unique. Right. But it's a beggar to search for. We never thought about putting that name into a search engine. So you if you want to go find it, make sure you spell Robin Hood the way it's spelt in old English. Right. Uh, and you'll be okay. You'll find it. <laughs> is this how his name was actually spelt? Yeah, that in the majority of the documents, that's Garland. how it ends up coming out. Uh, because Look his last that. name was Ode, and of course the H was then added to make it Hode or Hood. Right. Uh, and then Robin back then was spelt with a Y, not with an I. So that's a, pretty, a lot of right. a lot of the old texts were like that. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. like they they didn't have the I. Like even for example, Vampire was actually with a Y. Not an I, just yeah, you know, old, yeah. the old English, yeah. old speak. I love that. But so, okay, we know you've got books coming up. Do you have any speaking engagements coming up? Anything like that as we wind down here? Um, at the moment, what I'm doing is I'm doing as many interviews as I possibly can. So okay. if people just go and do a search, I'm right. out there. I'm I'm all over the place at the moment. Uh, and this year in particular, I've decided to tackle a few subjects I've not tackled before. Uh, so there's one out there on the mythology of Star Wars. There's one on did we land on the moon? Uh, there's all some great extra material that are only one off. You know, they're so, at well, the moment. You should be sending me said extra well, <laughs> material. We'll talk, talk more of this later. Um, yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing plenty online. Uh, all the back catalogue is out there now as well. Go onto YouTube through a company called Drake, Michigan. Lost Treasures is out there, all 22 episodes plus six extras. All the documentaries are out there now. Um, there's tons, absolutely tons of stuff now gone on YouTube. Only in the last few months because um, I was determined by the end of this year, I was going to get as much out there as I possibly could. So in the last 18 months, I think I, I must have put out 
probably close on to 100 interviews. There's probably, I'm just thinking about it, maybe 50 or 60 back catalogue things that have gone onto YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and three books. I managed to get three books out in the last 18 months. Wow. So, um, yeah, stuff Good is... I love it. Happening. I love it. Well, I have to wind us down and uh, <laughs> hold tight. <laughs> so, everybody, again, you are listening to the pre-recorded uh, version of our show this evening and we are winding down big thank you to mark ollie um I, I have to say this was very enlightening experience as always the life and times of the real robin hood and get it r-o-b-y-n-h-o-o-d-e for those of you who are listening do a search on that um big thank you to folgers coffee as well who sponsor our show tonight and every night Thank you, thank you. Big thank you to Justin Snicker, a.k.a. Dr. Snick, the Sonic Surgeon, for our intro and outro. Big thank you to Steve McGinnis for all of the artwork here at the show. And next week, well, actually, I shouldn't say next week. I'm ahead of myself. I apologize. Tomorrow night, we're going to be bringing back Dan Baldwin and George Sewell, who will be discussing their newest book, Paranormal Pendulum 3. And the part that I'm looking forward to is the sky people in contact with native americans so that's going to be good i love that stuff anyway thank you good night and good night to you mark because i know it's night over there <laughs> it is thanks for having me it's uh, heading pleasure. for eight o'clock <laughs> over here see <laughs> pleasure as always and i hope we will do it again soon <laughs>